Joel 2, 12 and 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. By it, we know who you are and what you're like. We read here that, that you are slow to anger, that you're gracious and merciful, and you abound in steadfast love. That is who you are, and that is how you act. And we thank you for that. We pray, God, that as, as we are in this word this morning, we would experience you as such. We would see the magnificence of such a character. And God, as our, our children go to their classes and, and their teachers open the word with them, I pray that they would get to see and experience the same God. Would you touch their hearts by your spirit through the word, that they might know you and turn to you. We thank you for gathering us here this morning. Would you be glorified in our midst and reveal yourself to us? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, good morning again. Um, Excited for this new series. Totally okay that that took you a long time to find. Like Joel is this tiny little book. In my Bible, it's probably two, maybe three pages, and it's, it's stuck there right at the back end of your Old Testament. And the, the reality is, as we get into this series in the Minor Prophets, we're, we're wading into books that most of us usually don't touch. Like if, if you're a person that's had your Bible for a while, you make highlights, you make notes, um, likely you know, you go to Romans, you go to Ephesians, you go to James in your Bible, and those are multicolored, and they've got all kinds of little dates on them from times you've read spots. I'm sure that these 12 books at the very end of your Old Testament are some of the most barren landscape in your Bibles probably, right? I mean, for most of us, they are. That's okay, they're, 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 because they're not the easiest books for us to read, but we're excited to be able to dive into them in this series and just all of God's word is profitable for us, and I, I think in particular, uh, these books have something really meaningful to, to say to us. So uh, this is what we're doing. From now until August, we're going to spend um, nine weeks, right up until the end of August, looking at nine of these 12, what are called minor prophets. We're going to skip three of them, uh, Hosea, Jonah, and Zechariah. We're actually going to punt on because those are books that we want to handle as a single sermon series at some point. They're incredibly rich, and doing them just in just one week probably wouldn't happen. And so we're going to skip over those. But the other nine weeks, we're just going to unpack a book a week uh, right up until the end of August. So I'm excited for that. Um, now, before we dive in, I just want to point you to uh, a resource that I hope you'll take advantage of. Um, coming into this sermon series, we put together uh, a bit of a study guide to help us get oriented and, and navigate through this uh, a little bit of foreign territory in our Bibles for us. Um, I had an issue with getting it 
sending it to the printer, and so I don't have a print copy. That'll be here next week. But if you're, if you're a digital person, um, I actually have a PDF up on the app and on our website that you can download. And that study guide just has introductions to each of the books that we're going to be preaching through, as well as an introduction to the entire Minor Prophets. And so it'll probably be a help to you if you're a digital person to, to go ahead and download that and benefit from it. And if you're not a digital person, uh, wait until next week when we'll have actual copies of that uh, for you. The other thing that I'd really encourage you to do as we go through this series is this is a real great opportunity, I think, through the summer to spend some time in a part of your Bible that you're not as familiar with. And in that, um, in that study guide, right in the front of it, there's actually the schedule for our preaching over the next nine weeks. I'd really encourage you to actually spend some time the week before a book is preached on to just read through it. These are mostly short books. Kind of soak in it, enjoy it, get oriented in it, and that's just going to help a ton when you come to a Sunday like this to benefit even more from from the preaching of God's Word uh, in and through these these books. All right, tons more I could say. I could probably go on and preach a whole sermon just introducing the Minor Prophets, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, We're going to actually just dive straight into the book of Joel. You know, uh, I was thinking this week uh, just how much we live in an age of distraction, don't we? And we live in this age where we are so easily distracted. Over the, over the last several years, there's been uh, all kinds of things written about the way that technology has just massively changed the way, that we, the way that we operate, the way that we do life, the way that we interact with one another. It's changed the way that we think. Uh, Microsoft recently published a report that showed that smartphones have actually dropped our attention spans by 30%. A third. We are a third less attentive. And we're constantly being pulled in, right, by the, the latest push notification on our phone or maybe the latest news headline or the newest Netflix series. We, we we're so easily distracted, And we see that on the street, right? How many of you have seen walking past you, maybe on the street or in a store or in the mall, someone with their head down on their phone or maybe driving, right? And you're just wondering, you know, at some point this person is going to bump into another person or they're going to walk straight into a telephone pole or they're going to walk into oncoming traffic. That's just a, a reality of being distracted. And I think that picture of this person head down, consumed with their own stuff, that's a microcosm of distraction in our age. And that distraction, it goes beyond technology, right? Even without a smartphone, most of us live here. We, we, we have this tendency to live head down, consumed with our own lives, right? Focused on our own stuff, living life for ourselves. We're, we're so busy making a living and driving our kids around from one place to another and preparing for the next project around our house that we, we rarely take the time to stop and ask ourselves the, these deeper questions about life. And we're, we're looking constantly at our Google calendar for, for what we're going to be up to next, but the reality is that we, we don't often ask, what is God up to? What's God up to in, in my life? And, and how does my life fit into what God is up to in the world? Uh, Maggie Jackson is a writer for the Boston Globe. She co-authored a book recently called Distraction, The Erosion of Attention and the Coming Dark Age. How's that for a title? And she says this, she says, the way that we live is eroding our capacity for deep 
sustained, perceptive attention. In other words, right, the, the way that we're living, our rhythms of life, the, thing, the practices that we have are actually undercutting, they're, they're chipping away at this, this ability in us to be attentive. We, we've stopped paying attention to what really matters in life, and in, in a lot of ways, we've stopped paying attention to God. And that, that's not just our culture. I mean, that's us as Christians, right? We've, we've become so consumed that we've lost our attention span when it comes to the things of God. And that's not just a modern issue. It's actually an ancient one as well, because that, that issue isn't just an issue with technology. It's, it's an issue with our hearts. And the book of Joel, I think, is, is actually a wake-up call to distracted people like us. God wants to, uh, through this book, and I, I think he wants to do it among us as, as we just sit here this morning, God, God wants to, through this book, grab our attention. And God refuses to just let us stay head down, consumed with our own stuff, focused on our own lives. God, God wants us to wake up to the fact that he is present and working, that, that he has a purpose in our lives and in this world that he wants us to, to get in line with. And so God wants to, church, grab, grab our attention this morning. So let's dive into Joel. If you don't have your Bible open in front of you, grab it. It's going to help you just to track through as we look through this whole book this morning. Now, as you're, as you're opening that up again, most of the minor prophets that we're going to look at, we can actually date quite accurately. We know the context and the situation that they wrote into. For a number of reasons, we, we actually don't know exactly when Joel prophesied. What we do know is the situation that he prophesied into was a, a time of national disaster in Judah. And Joel looks out at this, this historic situation that he finds himself in. 2,500 years ago, he, he looks out at this national crisis that God's people are in, and he looks at it and tries to interpret it for the people of God, tries to help them understand what God's up to in their situation and he tries to help them to realize that this, this isn't just a random event. God is actually, through their circumstances, trying to arrest their attention, trying to get their head up to see who he is and what he's doing. And as Joel in, interprets for God's people what God is up to, he, he actually paints in this book this incredible picture of, of God's righteous judgment set right alongside God's mercy and grace and his promise of restoration. It's this, this beautiful juxtaposition, side by side, judgment and salvation. In a lot of ways, this book really unfolds the heart of the gospel for us. And, and Joel does that really in three parts, three acts. And so what I want to do this morning for us is just really walk through those three different parts of Joel and help us uh, allow God to kind of arrest our attention through this book. And so here are the three acts uh, of the book of Joel. Act one, we'll call judgment, judgment. This is chapter one and verse one, all the way through chapter two in verse 11, act two, repentance, repentance, chapter two, verses 12 to 19 is this act two, repentance, and then act three is restoration, chapter two, verse 20, all the way through the end of the book, chapter three and verse 21, so three acts, judgment, repentance, restoration, okay, you ready to dive in? 
All right, let's do it. Act one, judgment. Now, as the curtain opens on Joel, it it opens on this massive disaster in the southern kingdom of Judah. There's this historic locust plague. Now, locusts have just totally devastated the land. You can, you can see that at the beginning of Joel if you, if you look here at chapter 1 and verse 2. I'm going to read, let's read it together. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the the destroying locust has eaten. Now, let me just say before I start to unpack what's going on here, that that, that when we come to these prophetic books, we we realize really quickly that we are not in James anymore, are we? We've, We've spent several months in this New Testament book of James that's actually really plain speak to us, right? It's really straightforward. This is not James. This is different. There's this natural gap that all of us feel when we come to this kind of book, when we come to this kind of text. These prophets are a totally different genre of literature, right? They're a completely different form and style from a New Testament letter like James. And so we have to realize that Joel here is going to use poetry He's going to use all kinds of imagery and literary tools and and a lot of things that are actually beautiful and eloquent for us. However, they are much harder for us to understand, aren't they? These things are just more difficult for us to, to understand. And so that should cultivate in us a humility and actually a patience when we're working through a text like this. And so let's look at this poetic language. Verse 4 is actually incredibly beautiful Hebrew poetry. There's this, this cycle of destruction that these locusts reap. And so Joel's point is that these locusts have just ravaged everything around them. Now, I don't know about you, but a locust plague is not something that I am super familiar with. Right? Like when I think national, historic national disaster, the first thing that comes to mind is not a locust plague. If you don't know what a locust is, it's, it's basically a three-inch long grasshopper on steroids. And they can be just a massive issue in, in the Middle East. About 100 years ago, back in 1915, there was actually a locust plague uh, in and around the region of Jerusalem, much like what Joel's talking about here. There, there was a day that these, these locust swarms just flew down out of the sky and immediately started digging holes and laying eggs. In fact, the way the locusts work, they actually lay about 70,000 eggs in a single square yard of soil. That, that, that is one of the creepiest moments of my week, considering that. And so in, uh, in 1915, during this plague, uh, uh, just a couple of weeks after the, those swarms laid eggs, those locusts began to hatch. Now locusts aren't born with wings, and so they started hopping around, covering several hundred yards each day, just devouring any type of vegetation that they found. As they got bigger, they started to jump further, and their range got larger, and they kept eating and eating and growing and growing until they developed wings and started to swarm together and just eat 
everything in sight. There, there were people a hundred years ago who witnessed this that said that the sounds of these swarms moving through the crops was just terrifying. And within a few days, there was literally just nothing left. Everything was devastated. And that's exactly what Joel describes here. Look, look, look at verse 10 here. He says, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. And this is just an agricultural nightmare. All of this has, has just decimated the land. And then as you, as you walk through chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, we see that the storehouses themselves are desolate. Verse 17 granaries are torn down even the animals in verse 18 groan because the streams have dried up this this is a picture of sheer devastation going on now in 2019 for us in america it's pretty hard for us to actually feel what this would have been like isn't it i mean drought and famine and, and locust plagues are just generally a foreign thing to us we don't experience them but use your imagination for just a moment. What, what if all of the communication networks in America went dead? What if, what if we lost all of them? They just shut down. I mean, we've seen scenarios like this in movies, right? Like, like what if something happened to all of our electricity and all of our utilities? They, they just went dark. And all of the infrastructure that depended on those things got shut down. All of the grocery stores closed and you couldn't go to Safeway or Fred Meyer or Winco to get food. The shelves were just bare. The gas stations were shut down. Can you imagine what kind of chaos and panic would ensue? this This is like end times apocalyptic stuff, isn't it? That's what Joel is pointing us toward. Joel looks at this event, this national crisis this monumental moment that's happening, and he casts it in these end-of-the-world terms. And what Joel then says is that this, this isn't just a random event. This is actually God's hand in this. In fact, Joel says this is a manifestation of, of what he calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Look with me here at verse 15. Alas for the day... For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Now Joel uses this term, the day of the Lord, multiple times, several times in, in this book. And, and if we're going to understand what Joel's talking about here at all in this book, we've got to come to grips with the meaning of this term, the day of the Lord. Because it, it is really the central theme of all of Joel. Now that theme of the day of the Lord is woven in different ways throughout the scriptures and everywhere it's talked about. The day of the Lord is this day, this cataclysmic moment when God breaks into human history and judges sin and destroys his enemies and rescues and redeems his people. It's this this day, this moment of judgment and salvation. That's always the way that the day of the Lord is, is talked about. But, but track with me here in, in what Joel is saying. Across Scripture, and I, I, I think in Joel in particular, the, the day of the Lord is not just one singular event. It's not just one event 
at the end of time, at the end of the world, like we think of Armageddon or, or just the, the end of the world when God ends everything, that, that's not the only meaning here in Joel when he talks about the day of the Lord. What, what Joel and the rest of the Bible see are actually many different manifestations of that day. This cataclysmic breaking in of God into human history to both judge and save. This is actually one of the things that we, we, we have to get if we're going to go through the prophets this summer. If we're going to read them faithfully, we, we have to understand what the prophets are, are doing. You know, one of the worst, actually I think one of the most dangerous things that, that we can do is to come to the prophets with our Bible in one hand and our newspaper in the other. And, and then start trying to, to make all of these... Um, these prophetic books fit as an explanation and, and, and a layout for everything that's happening in, in geopolitically in, in our world in the moment that we live in. And there's folks, right? There's Christians that just become obsessed with that. And they've got end times charts and they've got dates and they've got nations and they've got leaders and, and everything is laid out, how, how all of this is going to play out. Now, with, without being condescending in saying this, I, I want you to really come to grips with us together at, at actually how, how narrow and how self-centered it is for us to come to a book that was written 2,500 years ago and assume that all of it is interpreting everything that's happening in 2019. Are you hearing me here? And that's just not the way that these books were actually meant to be read. Instead, let, let, me, let me try and give you a picture of how we should read the prophets. And, and this is so important for us as we go through this series. We're going to come back probably to this illustration, this picture, over and over again. Because we, we need to understand what the prophets are doing uh, just the other day, it was, it was actually a beautiful morning. I live on South Hill. Uh, the sun was rising. If you know South Hill Puyallup or you've lived over there, it is a beautiful spot, right? And you have these pockets in South Hill that have spectacular views of Mount Rainier. And this morning, I, I, I looked across at this beautiful uh, moment, right? The sun is just coming up over Rainier. And as I look out, as you look out from South Hill, over the Ording Valley and across to Mount Rainier, you, you don't just see Rainier, right? You see all kinds of other peaks alongside Rainier. There's, there's foothills, there's other snow peaks, they're all right there. But from the vantage point of South Hill, all of those mountains, including Rainier, look like a single range, you, you can't see any type of depth or distance, right? It looks like they're just side by side. It looks like they're this two-dimensional mountain range. Now, if I were to get in a plane and go up to even 10,000 feet, what would I start to see? All kinds of mountains, and I would start to see distance, right? I'd start to see depth. What I would see is that closest to me, there's these layer of foothills, and behind those foothills is another valley and another range of mountains, and then behind that, another valley leading all the way up to the foot of Mount Rainier, where I see this snow peak come up, and then behind Rainier even, a, another valley that leads to another range of mountains. I'd see with perspective, right? I'd see with distance and depth. Church, this is very much like 
the prophets. The, the, the prophets really write from this ground level perspective, right? They write from South Hill. What, what they see in front of them doesn't have distance. It doesn't have depth. And, and so the prophets don't write with this chronological clarity. In fact, it's impossible for them because from their perspective, all of it blends together. It's, it's all this single mountain range that, that you can't always distinguish depth and distance. But from God's perspective, the fulfillment of those events actually comes in at different times, and in different ways, there, there's a distance between them. But the reality is, from our perspective, we can't always tell what that distance is. And so we have to be really careful about what we think we can actually see from this ground level that we sit at. Does that help at all? This is so important for us to get, because if we, if we don't get it, we're going to get off on all kinds of rabbit trails from what the prophets are actually trying to, to tell us. And it matters for us a ton in Joel because Joel is helping unfold for us the day of the Lord that happens in multiple times and multiple ways. All right, let's look back at the text. So Joel looks out at him, right? Joel is in Judah. He's in this moment of national disaster. And he, he looks around him and, and, he, and he looks at these events and what he says is this, hey, This is the day of the Lord. This is one of these cataclysmic events where God has entered into history. This is a day of judgment. But not only for Joel is this locust plague, this this present day of judgment, for Joel, this locust plague, this drought, this famine, it's also a picture. It's an illustration. It's an image of an even greater judgment that's coming. Look with me, read with me chapter 2 and verse 1 here. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. In other words, get the air raid siren going. There's an attack that's coming. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's near. Now, anytime the biblical authors say something is near, what they actually mean is that it's upon us. It's here. It's it's at our feet, okay? And so he says, this, this is another manifestation of this day of the Lord. It's near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. There's an army coming. Joel sees this army coming, an army that's going to carry out on Israel a level of destruction that these locusts, this plague, was only a foretaste of. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3 here. Fire devours before them, this army, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. They're just bringing destruction everywhere that they go. And at the head of this army, this is the shocking moment of chapter 2 here, at the head of this army, leading this army against God's own people, we find out in verse 11, is the Lord Himself. God Himself is leading this army of northerners, these, this other country's army against his own people. 
against Israel. What's going on here? God here is actually being faithful to his covenant. He's actually here being faithful to the promises that he made to Israel. What do I mean by that? Well, Israel is experiencing here what God promised in the book of Deuteronomy that they would. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn back with me to Deuteronomy. It's your, the fifth book in your Bible. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And as you're turning there, um, let me just give you a little bit of context. You know, if you know the story of Israel, God brought the nation of Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, right? He, he gave them his law. He made this covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And that covenant marked them out as this distinct people, as God's own people. And in Deuteronomy, Moses rehearses this covenant with the people of God that are on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And and through Moses, God essentially says to his people at the tail end of Deuteronomy here, God essentially says to them, hey, if you follow me, Israel, if, if you're faithful to my covenant, if you, if you walk in my ways, if you follow my statutes, things are going to go well for you. You're, you're going to experience all of the blessing and the flourishing that, that, that life was meant to have under my good rule. But if you don't follow me, if you're, if you're unfaithful to this covenant and you rebel against me and you, you chase after idolatry and sin, you're not going to experience blessing. Instead, you're going to experience all of the effects of the curse. Life's going to be hard for you. And things aren't going to be the way that they're supposed to be. There's going to be times when your world feels like it's falling apart. In, in fact, the language that we see in Deuteronomy 28 uh, is that Israel's rebellion is actually in some ways going to feel like creation itself is unraveling. And you'll eventually, God says, be conquered and carried into exile. You, you're you're going to experience my judgment. Look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 38. And we'll see some of this in the way it played out here for Israel. Deuteronomy 28, verse 38. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You see the parallel here and what's happening in Joel? Verse 49 of Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a, a nation whose language you do not understand. Right? There's, there's going to be this opponent from outside of you come and make war against you. They're going to defeat you and take you into exile. And that actually happened right? to Judah. Babylon came in and conquered them and brought the people of God into exile. This was part of the covenant curses that God had promised for disobedience in Deuteronomy. Now all of this in Deuteronomy 28, all, all of this is meant to be a, a, a picture for us of what sin does in our lives and in this world. Right? What does sin do? Sin fundamentally breaks everything down. It destroys. It it brings hardship, right? It eats away at our very souls. It brings famine and drought into our lives. It brings us into exile, away from the presence of God. And so all of this is meant to be an illustration for God's people of what sin and rebellion actually, actually does to us. 
And you see here that Israel would have looked at these images in Joel. They would have looked at the locusts. They would have looked at this, this picture of this invading army. They, they would have looked at this unraveling of creation, the way that Joel talks about it, right? The Garden of Eden in front and a, a wasteland behind this army. They would have looked at all of this poetic imagery that Joel uses and they would, have, they, they, they would have seen their world just coming apart and knowing their Bibles, there would have been all kinds of things popping in their minds. They would have immediately known that these are not just random events happening to them. This is the very judgment of God against their sin, against their rebellion. Now, Joel doesn't give us specifics in this book, but it, it, it's obvious that, that God's people have just been going their own way, right? They've been... They've been doing their own thing. They've been, they've been chasing after life on their own terms. They, they've had their head down, focused and consumed with themselves. And, and in their hearts, in a lot of ways, they said, God, we, we want your blessing, but we don't really want your rule over us. And God here is trying to get their attention. In, in, in His mercy, God is trying to wake them up. He's inviting them here back to Himself. And we see that as we move into Act 2 here, chapter 2 and verse 12. This is, this is God's way, church, of getting these people's attention. Waking them up to what He's doing. Act 2 starts in chapter 2 and verse 12. In Act 2, repentance. Look at the invitation here that God makes Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. You know, this, this plague, this, this army that we see here in Joel, this, this mess, this judgment, is actually God's mercy toward His people. How so? God here is putting this, this roadblock up for His people. He, he is refusing to let His people just keep going their own way, head down, consumed with life on their own terms. You know, there are some times in life when out of love, you would injure someone uh, to keep them from being harmed in a worse way. Am I right? Like, I hope that if I saw any of you about to walk in front of a moving bus... I would run as hard as I could to body check you out of the way. Now, you might end up with some bruises. You might have a broken bone or two, but your life would be saved. In a lot of ways, that, that is what God is doing here at the beginning of Joel. He's guarding His people from something much, much worse happening. And church, I wonder where God in His mercy might actually be doing that in some of your own lives this morning. Where in His mercy, He might actually be giving hardship and difficulty in your life to keep you from something much more difficult, to invite you to come back to Him. Maybe there, there are some of you that, that this morning feel like there, there are just places falling apart in your life. You, you feel like, there's spots maybe like Israel experienced where it just feels like you look back on the past year and wave after wave of hardship has hit you with just, without any chance to even breathe. 
Maybe there's places where you look at your life and you feel personally the, the unraveling that sin has brought into your own life. The difficulty that it's brought. The hardship that it's brought. Maybe there, there are places for you where, where you feel like you're just barely holding on. And I wonder, what, what is the Lord doing in the midst of that? I wonder if He's actually trying to arrest your attention. To turn your eyes off of yourself. To, to look up to Him. And what God is doing in everything that He does is actually inviting us in His mercy. He's, he's calling us in His grace to get our eyes up off of ourselves and onto Him. And so what would, what would it look for, like for you this morning to, to see in your difficulty, in your hardship, in the places where you feel like your world is upside down and falling apart, what, what would it look like for you to see there, in that place, actually a gracious and merciful God who's body checking you out of the way of something much worse so that He can draw you back to Himself? What, what, it, what would it look like for you to, to see your circumstances as actually God's way of arresting your attention and calling you back? You know, as, as stubborn and as self-absorbed as we can be, as, as deep and entrenched as we can be in, in our sin, it is never too late for us to turn back to Him. I mean, look at what God says here. That, that This is incredible. The day of the Lord is at hand. This, this enemy army is at the gate. They're ready to overrun the city. And God says, yet, even now. Even now, at this climactic moment of judgment, even when things are as bad as they can get, even, even when things feel like your life is destroyed, even when you feel conquered, even when you feel like you've given up hope, God says, yet, even now, return to Me. Return to Me. Come back. There's no way God's going to turn you away. But, Rend your hearts, he says, and not your garments. Friends, God is not the least bit interested in your religion. God isn't interested in, in your church attendance or, or your giving record or your volunteer hours. And so if you're feeling this morning this, this sense that God's calling you to return to Him, to run back to Him, He isn't interested in you this morning just resolving to do better resolving to read your Bible and, and pray more, what God is interested in is not your religious acts, but your heart. He's interested in you opening up your heart to Him. Return to the Lord your God. Listen to this. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is Exodus 34, right? This is God's revelation of Himself to Moses that He is a God gracious merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is the fundamental character of God. He's a God who relents over disaster. Who knows, Joel says, whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him. There's this great hope that we have a God with arms wide open, ready to receive back whoever comes running to Him. Well, Israel here in Joel's story does repent. In fact, there's this wholesale, whole nation recognition of their sin. And what's striking after this is just how quickly after this national repentance, 
the story turns. Repentance in Joel is actually this hinge where that moves God's people from this place of judgment into a place of blessing and restoration. And that's chapter uh, Act three here uh, in Joel, God's restoration, His salvation. Look with me at chapter two and verse eighteen. After this repentance, we see what happens. Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. The Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. Do you see the turn that happens here? In chapter 1, what was it that dried up? It was the grain and the wine and the oil Joy and gladness were cut off. But here, what's happening? There's satisfaction, right? These things have been brought back to the people of God. Everything turns here from judgment into blessing. Verse 22, listen to the parallel of this this restoration in contrast with the destruction, the judgment of chapter 1. Fear not, you beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their yield. Do you, do you see this reversal that's happening? It happens again in verse 25 here of Joel 2. I will restore to you, God says, the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. God's turning their judgment, their destruction through repentance into restoration, into salvation. And then in verse 23, he says this, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured out, He's poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. God, God is bringing his restoration to this land. But look, he's also restoring here his people. If you remember in chapter 1, we saw this, this locust plague as an image, an illustration of this, this severe, this greater judgment that's coming. Well, this healing of God over the land, this pouring out of water on the land is actually an image It's an illustration of this this greater restoration, this greater blessing that God's going to bring to His people. God starts by pouring out the blessing of water, but Joel says one day He's going to pour out the blessing of His Spirit. The blessing of His Spirit. Joel says this in verse 28 of chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh crazy thing here is that Joel actually talks about this day of the pouring out of God's Spirit in day of the Lord type of language. But this isn't a day of judgment for God's people. It's actually a day of salvation for them. Keep, keep reading with me here in verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not just God's people, Israel, but everyone who calls on the Lord. Everyone who comes to Him. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he he looks out at what's happening out in this, this early church, right? As God pours out His Spirit on the early church, Joel 
Joel looks at that and he knows his Bible. And he looks back on these words of Joel and he, he says, hey, today, this is that day. This is that day of the Lord when God's going to bring His restoration into history, bring His salvation into history for, the, for His people. It's this day of the Lord. God, right now, Peter's saying, is doing this saving, restoring work in people and, and in the world. Church, every one of us deserves judgment. Now, every one of us, for our sin and rebellion, deserve much worse than a locust plague, much worse than an invading army. We deserve hell. I mean, every one of us has, has lived this way, right? We've, we've lived head down, focused on ourselves, focused on our own ends without paying attention to God at all. And yet, here in Joel, God gives this invitation. He gives this invitation to come to Him, to call on Him, to repent before Him, to, to come and rend our hearts and experience His blessing. How is that possible? How can God do that for sinful, rebellious people like you and me? Well, it's possible actually because of another day of the Lord. Not one that Joel talks about, but another one nonetheless. There's another moment when God cataclysmically enters into history to both judge and save. This kind of salvation and blessing are possible for us because of the cross. The Scripture talks about Jesus' death as actually one of these climactic day of the Lord type moments. I mean, think about the language that the Gospel uses to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, right? What happens? The earth quakes, the sky goes dark, the curtain of the temple is torn in two, the dead are raised from their graves. This is day of the Lord type language. And so on that day, this day of the Lord at the cross, Jesus actually acts for us by doing something. He takes on Himself the covenant cursing that we deserve. I mean, he, Jesus on that cross was left barren. Joy and gladness in Joel's language was cut off from him. Soldiers, right, over, overtook him. I mean, he was in essence led into exile outside of the presence and favor of God. And in going there, Jesus took on himself the judgment of God against all of our rebellion and all of our sin. And th- th- this great exchange happened. Right? Our, our sin, our curse, He took so that all of the covenant blessings that only He deserves could be given to us. Right? God's restoring work, His salvation, His justice, God's conquering of all of His enemies, most supremely for us, the, the blessing of God's presence, God's dwelling with us. These, these blessings that only Jesus truly deserved for only He actually perfectly obeyed the covenant, all of those become ours. Once who haven't obeyed the covenant, once who are rebels and sinners, they become ours by faith in Him. And now, for us, here's where we're at, church, in, in the unfolding of this history of God. As, as followers of Jesus, we actually get to enjoy this restoration, this blessing, this salvation in part, don't we? 
And there's this foretaste of all the restoring work that God's doing that we experience, but there's also still a final day of the Lord that's coming. A day that all of these other days of the Lord point to. The day that all of these other days are just a shadow, just an illustration of. And Joel ends with that final day here in chapter 3. It's a day when, when God will finally judge every enemy and destroy sin and death and will gather His people to dwell with Him forever. Listen to Joel's language here in in chapter 3 and verse 18. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. And this, this place that he's talking about sounds a whole lot like a restored Eden, doesn't it? The restoration of all of God's creation. And then verse 20 he says, And Judah, God's, God's land, God's place, shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. And then he ends with this, For the Lord dwells in Zion. And the end of this beautiful picture of restoration is God dwelling with His people forever. God is at work, church, to move all of His plans to this ultimate uh, consummation through all kinds of different days of the Lord, ultimately at the cross, and then penultimately on that day when we're gathered to Him forever. He's inviting us this morning not to walk through life with our head down, focused on ourselves and on our own stuff, but to wake up to Him, to all that He is for us and all that He's doing in our lives. Let's do that as we sing together and as we partake of the table. Let's turn our eyes away from ourselves and onto Him. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for Your great grace to us shown in and through the Gospel that, that in the cross, Jesus bore in Himself the cursing we deserve so that we could experience the blessing that only He deserves God, would you make that real to us? It's so easy for us to just go through life with our head down, distracted, focused on ourselves, and yet you're calling us this morning. You're inviting us to open our hearts to you, to to rend our hearts, to experience your good and gracious rule in our lives. And so Lord, help us, enable us to run to you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.